When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. the 1906 San Francisco earthquake. Biggest natural disaster in American history. There's a huge earthquake which, you know, levels the city and sparks fires that rage for three solid days. At 5.12 in the morning on April 18th, 1906, a 7.9 magnitude earthquake shook San Francisco. It lasted less than a minute. But the destruction was massive. Buildings crumbled, water mains were damaged, and gas lines broke, engulfing the city in fire. Nearly 500 city blocks were destroyed. San Francisco is basically leveled to the ground. Except when the smoke clears and the dust finally settles, standing there amid the ruins, just a two-story warehouse but it basically survives the whole disaster unscathed because it's built out of this very strong, flexible, fireproof material. This material wasn't groundbreaking technology. It wasn't even new. It was one of the oldest building materials we have, concrete. And that really got people's attention. That was a big moment where all around the country, all eyes, everybody was looking at San Francisco in the wake of this horrible disaster. Everybody sees this building that came through and people wrote about it. It made headlines all over the country. From this old house, this is Clear Story, your home in a new light. I'm Kevin O'Connor. After the earthquake, everyone was in awe of concrete. Which is odd, right? I mean, it's been around since the beginning of civilization. But here's the crazy part. For about a thousand years, the recipe was lost. People forgot about concrete and how to make it. I mean, it just simply vanished. It's impossible to understate just how important concrete has been to civilization. If you've ever seen the Roman Colosseum or the Pantheon with its impressive domed roof and columns, Well, those were made out of concrete 2,000 years ago, and they're still standing. It's really just a combination of water, sand, gravel, and cement, a binding agent that glues it all together. That's it. Today, concrete is the most used man-made material in the world. We put twice as much concrete in buildings, bridges, dams, and apartment complexes than all other construction materials combined. Now, How could something so important and yet so basic disappear for a thousand years? It's still a bit of a mystery, but some people have guessed that concrete was lost because it wasn't complicated to make. There wasn't a pressing urgency to pass the knowledge down through families the way a skilled craftsman would, like a sculptor or a blacksmith. So I was curious where concrete came from and how important it's been in defining how we live today. 
I called Vince Spicer. He's a journalist and author of The World in a Grain of Sand. You wrote, concrete is an invention as transformative as fire or electricity. That's a pretty bold statement. You're going up against two big things right there and human inventions. Yeah, well, I think it, it definitely ranks up there. I mean, concrete is the skeleton of the modern world. It's thanks to concrete that we're able to build the enormous dams that give us the hydroelectric power that powers so much of our civilization. It's thanks to concrete that we can build the skyscrapers that our cities are made out of. It's thanks to concrete that we're able to build roads and bridges that enable cars and trucks to take us and to take goods and produce everywhere. The internal combustion engine would have just been a, a novelty item without concrete roads for us to drive our cars on. Why don't we notice it or pay attention to it? It's so omnipresent, it's so everywhere that it's it's almost like air, right? How often do you think about air? You couldn't live without air, but you don't walk around every day going, wow, look at all this air. It's so great that we have all this air. Once you sort of start thinking, huh, concrete and looking around, it is absolutely everywhere, right? It's in the floor underneath you, the ceiling overhead, the walls around you. You look out the window, it's the buildings around you, the roads under our feet, airport runways, sidewalks, it's absolutely everything. There are a few reasons concrete is so popular. It's quick and easy to use. You just mix up that simple recipe I mentioned. It's flexible. You can pour it into a mold and create any shape you want. It's strong and it's cheap. But the more I dug into it, it seems that the story of concrete is anything but simple. Let's talk about the ingredients. You know, you say they're basic, you say they're simple. Do we need just the right type of aggregate, just the right type of sand, cement, or whatever, or are they just sort of everywhere? Yes, and I'm really glad you asked that. You basically need quartz sand, you know, hard stone sand, which is the most plentiful kind of sand there is. That's the good news. The bad news is we use so much concrete every single year on this planet that to build it, we are digging up 50 billion tons of sand and gravel every single year to get that particular quartz sand that we need. And that is causing massive environmental damage all over the world. Because where do we find that sand? We find it on riverbeds. We find it on lake bottoms. We find it on beaches. All of those things are being ripped up, stripped bare to get the sand that we need to make that concrete. So that's one of the, the issues that goes along with concrete. Wait a second. Why are we going to the bottom of a river to get sand and not the Sahara Desert and just scooping it out of the desert? Ah, great question. Because the thing is, the sand, all that sand in deserts is basically useless to us. And the reason is, desert sand grains have a different shape than the kind of grains of sand that you find at the bottom of rivers. Desert sand grains have been eroded by wind over thousands and millions of years, and that's given it kind of a rounded shape. Whereas the stuff that you find on river bottoms, the stuff that's been eroded by water is more angular. It's got a lot more corners and angles, so it locks together to form a stable structure. It's like the difference between trying to build something out of a stack of millions of little marbles as opposed to a stack of millions of little bricks. So believe it or not, we are actually starting to run out of sand. Come on, out of sand? I'm telling you. It's amazing, it's, it's really hard to believe, but to, to understand why, you have to take a step back and think, you know, what are we using that sand for? Well, we use sand for lots of different things. We make glass out of sand. We make the silicon chips that power our computers and our cell phones made out of sand. Uh, we use it to replenish beaches that are eroding. 
But the number one thing by far that we use sand for is concrete. We use 50 billion tons every single year. That's enough to cover the entire state of California, and most of that goes to build concrete. We use enough concrete every single year, every year, to build a wall right the way around the equator, 30 yards wide, 30 yards high. What? Yeah, that's how much concrete we're using, and that is how we can be running out of its most basic ingredient, sand. Right now, there's no replacement for the kind of sand we need. But that hasn't slowed down our use of concrete. And we're not the first people to become obsessed with it. The ancient Greeks and Mayans used it. But the Romans were the ones who really mastered it. They built roads out of it, public buildings, stadiums. And the Pantheon, if any of your listeners have ever been to Rome, you might have seen the famous Pantheon. It's 2,000 years old. It's got a concrete roof that is still intact 2,000 years later. There was a magical quality to concrete, too. You could build it in water. Picture this. Roman ships setting off to conquer new lands, and they can construct a dock right in front of their enemies. They had a huge port at what's now Caesarea in Israel, you know, with enormous uh, facilities to where ships could dock and things could be unloaded, all made out of concrete. To build on that kind of scale, to build structures that are strong, that are that big, it works in the cold, it works in the heat, it stands up to rain, it's fireproof, more or less. At its peak, the Roman Empire reached from Spain to North Africa and the Middle East. The Romans built a complex and sophisticated system of concrete roads stretching 75,000 miles so they could move military troops and goods. And they built concrete ports on the Mediterranean Sea, trading leather, iron, olive oil, and wine. But then the Roman Empire basically collapsed, right? The whole fall of the Roman Empire, the Western world slid into the Dark Ages, and somehow the secret of concrete was just lost. People just literally forgot how to build out of concrete. And for a thousand years, there were no new concrete buildings built on planet Earth. This is fascinating. We figure out this miracle building material, and it's maybe the reason that the Romans could build a modern civilization. And then it's gone. Concrete just completely vanishes from construction for a thousand years. How we got it back? after the break. How could something so important and yet so basic as concrete disappear for a thousand years? Some people have guessed it's because concrete wasn't complicated to make, so there wasn't a pressing urgency to pass the knowledge down through families the way a skilled craftsman would, like a sculptor or a blacksmith. And with the fall of the Roman Empire, the trade system that moved the necessary ingredients from place to place also disappeared. Whatever the cause, Concrete vanishes with the fall of the Roman Empire. And while we still don't have that exact recipe, something similar shows up during the Industrial Revolution. 
late 1700s, early 1800s in Europe, we move from an agrarian society to one dominated by industry and manufacturing. In amid that, all kinds of builders, engineers, inventors were messing around with, with ways to glue together stone blocks, right? Which was sort of the main sort of big building material then, right? You get these huge chunks of granite or whatever and pile them up to make your castles, your fortresses, bridges, public buildings, whatever. But you want some, some glue to hold those, those stones in place. So people started sort of messing around with that and sort of rediscovered cement, which is the other ingredient, which is the, the binding agent. It's like the glue that holds sand and gravel together to form concrete. It's 1824, and a British bricklayer named Joseph Aspen patents it as Portland cement because the material reminds him of the strong stone from the Isle of Portland in the UK. And eventually they figured out that, like, oh, if we mix in, if we give it some bulk by mixing in sand and gravel, you've got artificial stone, is what they called it. Huh, that's handy. At this point, Building with this artificial stone is pretty rudimentary. Picture one-story structures. Over the next 20 years, engineers heat up the cement to higher temperatures to produce a better glue, making concrete stronger. But even these stronger mixes had their drawbacks. Concrete was good for walls and foundations. It could support a lot of weight under compression. But it wasn't good for things like floors that had to span the space between walls. That's called tension. And when it came to tension, concrete was brittle. It cracked and failed easily. So people started experimenting with inserting rods into the mixture to give it more strength. Fast forward a couple decades. Enter a guy named Ernest Ransom. Ernest Ransom was an engineer, came over from England and set up shop in San Francisco. He was a builder. He worked for his father's cement company, and he really thought this concrete stuff had a future. He was convinced this was going to be the thing. Remember the warehouse that survived the San Francisco earthquake and fires from the top of the episode? That was one of Ernest Ransom's buildings. So he literally experimented in his backyard with different ways of putting in iron reinforcement rods. He just like had a a big crank and figured out a way to twist the rods so that the the concrete would bound to it much more strongly than concrete had before. And that was the prototype of reinforced concrete, which is still the concrete that is used all over the world today. The breakthrough that Ransom discovers as he's twisting the rods is that it gives concrete the tensile strength of iron while maintaining the compressive strength it already had. That means concrete can withstand being pulled and stretched. Now it can span large distances, used for floors, and it can be molded and shaped. It's the most significant development in concrete since the Romans built the Pantheon. But he can't get anybody to use it. He goes all over the country trying to convince engineers and builders and architects to build something with this stuff. And People just laughed at him, basically. They're like, you know, why would we go with this crazy new building material? Well, you know, we've got bricks, we've got stone, we've got wood, we've got steel, by God. Look, we just built a 10-story building in Cincinnati at the time. That was the tallest building on earth, 10 whole stories. And people just thought he was nuts. 
Ransom did get some projects built, though, including a small bridge in San Francisco and that two-story warehouse. And then came the San Francisco earthquake in 1906. That was a real turning point. That was one of the real inflection points where people suddenly realized, wow, this is an amazing material. We're going to, let's try it ourselves. Let's try it in our city. And from there, it just exploded and took off and rapidly took over the world. It's a remarkable image, you know, a city laid to waste in uh, crumbled ruins, ashes, and there's this one building sort of standing up, you know, Phoenix in the ashes standing there to proclaim its success and viability. How quickly does it take off? Like, what do they do with it when they see this thing? So San Francisco, mind you, is leveled to the ground. They need to rebuild it very quickly. There's hundreds of thousands of people with no homes. So they're looking to build very fast. And so concrete, again, one of the great things about it it's fast, man. You can build something out of it very quickly. You just mix it up, pour it into your mold, let it set, you're done. It's much faster than laying bricks or masonry or anything. I'm talking within five or six years, all across the country, people had started to adopt it en masse. It compares really to the speed at which like cell phones or computers spread in our day. Huh. It was the kind of thing where like you know, if you're of a certain age, you'd never heard of it when you were growing up. And then all of a sudden, it's just everywhere. The rediscovery of concrete couldn't have happened at a better time. In 1920, for the first time in U.S. history, more people lived in cities than in the countryside. So at that point, you had millions of people streaming out of farms and into cities. So if you think about it, how are you going to build housing and transport and factories for all those people? You need a building material from which you can build things very, very quickly. And I don't think it could have happened without concrete. Fast forwarding to today, urbanization isn't so much an American phenomenon anymore, but it's a worldwide phenomenon. You know, countries around the world are urbanizing at a massive rate. What does that say about the future of concrete? Well, again, it's something that could not happen without concrete. And it is absolutely mind-blowing when you really stop and think about how fast cities are growing around the world. We are building cities on a pace and at a scale way beyond anything else in human history. I mean, just give you a few numbers. In 1950, there were about 750 million people worldwide living in cities. Today, that number is about 4.2 billion, and it's growing at a rate of almost 100 million a year. What that means is we are adding the equivalent of about nine New York cities to the planet every single year. That's why we're so incredibly reliant on concrete. That's why we're using such mind-blowing amounts of the stuff now is because we're having to build cities to house all those people. China all by itself, just in the last few years, has used more cement than the United States did in the entire 20th century. Stop and think about that for a second. Matt, try and think about every road, every building, every sidewalk, every airport runway that was built in the United States between 1900 and 2000. Well, China has used more concrete than that just in the last few years. There are plenty of other countries hot on China's heels. India, Brazil, Indonesia, and Nigeria. Urbanization is happening just about everywhere. But there are problems. Earlier, Vince told us we were running out of the sand we need to make concrete. Well, that's not all. It turns out that making cement, the glue that sticks the stone and gravel together in concrete, 
while making that is really bad for the environment. It takes an enormous amount of energy, right? You've got to put that limestone and other minerals into kilns and heat them up to thousands and thousands of degrees Fahrenheit. That creates a lot of carbon emissions. Secondly, also the chemical process itself, you're putting those things through a chemical reaction to turn them into that cement powder. And one of the byproducts of that chemical process is carbon, which goes straight up the, the, the chimney of your kiln and right up into the atmosphere, huge amounts of it. So it's a double whammy. It's a double whammy. Think about this. Concrete production accounts for 8% of the world's CO2 emissions a year. If the concrete industry was a country, well, it would be the world's third worst emitter behind China and the U.S. If we can shift over more of the energy grid to renewables, to solar, to wind, and get the energy for cement kilns from those, that saves a lot, right? And in fact, a lot of some cement plants are so huge that they can actually help influence those decisions. Second thing is we can come up with ways to make cement that doesn't release as much carbon, that's less carbon intensive. There's also folks who are looking at ways to make cement that not only release less carbon in the, in the process, but actually absorb carbon. What does the future look like? We're definitely gonna keep using it and we're definitely gonna keep using enormous amounts of it which, you know, in many ways is a good thing, right? I mean, all these people in countries like India and Indonesia, they have just as much right as we do to live in solid, sturdy buildings with a waterproof floor and strong roads to drive on. And concrete is great for that. So in a lot of ways, it's good. But of course, we have got to find ways to lessen the burdens that it puts on the planet. Another thing we can be looking at is concrete that lasts longer. Um, one of the problems that really most people never even think about is concrete does not last forever. So all these millions and millions of concrete buildings and bridges and dams that, we're, that we've put in place all over the world, they are all slowly and sometimes not so slowly breaking down. They're gonna have to be replaced. So today's concrete has fallen apart and at a pretty fast rate, relatively speaking. So what did the Romans know that made their concrete last for thousands of years? Well, to find out, we might need to look inside a volcano. More in a minute. Today's concrete, the stuff we've been making since Ernest Ransom built that small warehouse in the late 1800s, that lasts for about 100 years. It's definitely not the same concrete the Romans were making 2,000 years ago. Their stuff is still standing. So what's up with that? So that's what my lab now does, really. Admir Mashich is an assistant professor of civil and environmental engineering at MIT, and he's trying to crack the code of Roman concrete. Because remember, for about a thousand years, people forgot how to make it. The recipe was never passed on. Now, Admir is trying to figure out what made Roman concrete so durable, so we can develop a better modern concrete that's not only stronger and longer lasting, but that's also better for the environment. That's really um, 
good question. It's outstanding, okay? Uh, now we are agree, community does agree that it's self-healing. This means that basically when a, a micro crack is formed in the material, will be eventually filled with uh, crystals of something that is intrinsic in the uh, original mix. And that leads to a self-healing property that you know we do also in, in uh, we have in, in our bones. It's but it's very difficult to find in a non-living uh, material. So how do they make it? Let's go through the formula. What did the Romans do when they actually concocted this material? They had a privilege to have Vesuvius nearby. It was a volcano near Naples, uh, and that volcano, through the geological history, deposited a lot of ash in the region, including this little city called Pozzuoli. And Pozzuoli uh, is full of volcanic ash deposits that Romans, for some reason, decided to put into the mix. And mix is nothing else than lime, sand, or gravel, and this volcanic ash. And because uh, lime and volcanic ash, due to chemistry, are able to react uh, uh, when in contact with water, that process of hydration of this mix uh, that now we call Pozzolanic reaction from Pozzuoli, <laughs> the name of the city, Pozzuoli, in Latin, we have a hardening of a slurry. So exactly what we do currently with our ordinary Portland cement, we have a gravel, sand, and a clinker, this material that we produce industrially, and we add water, and this is a slurry, then you can put it into a shape and it hardens over time. That's what Romans kind of realized. Did they stumble upon it? Did they have any idea what they were doing? Did they just try 10 recipes, 100 recipes, and then a little bit of ash went in, and next thing they're like, whoa, this works. Indeed, uh, we, we learn you know, um, about this discovery through ancient scholars. So Vitruvius documented how you should do it. And what he says is like, you know that there is this uh, deposit of a magical powder that if you put it into the <laughs> mix with the lime and sand, it will combine and cure underwater, uh, which then uh, resulted to be self-healing. I don't think they knew that, okay? <laughs> they didn't know that it's going to last forever, you know? <laughs> Uh, but yeah, I think it's uh, an outstanding uh, discovery for that time and uh, results an uh, outstanding material also for us uh, in, in our modern world. So the Roman recipe included volcanic ash particles, which had been heated up by Mother Nature. Today, we take limestone, clay, and sand and fire them up in a kiln to 2,700 degrees. That creates the clinker that Admir mentioned. We grind that up into a powder, and that mixture is Portland cement, or the glue. To get modern concrete, we take the cement, some sand and gravel, and mix them with water. But here's the thing. Our modern mix doesn't have those magical, self-healing properties of Roman concrete. So over time, it cracks and exposes the rebar, those steel rods that are embedded inside, to air and water. And that creates rust and more cracks, and eventually it fails. 
I mean, we have evidences of bridges that collapse after 50, 100 years, you know, <laughs> or need for repairs and maintenance and costs and money we spend in that on our infrastructure are ginormous, I mean, incredible amount of money spent every day just to, you know, take care of some uh, vulnerable points in our infrastructure. That's an interesting point. A hundred-year-old bridge sounded pretty good to me until I put it in the context of 2,000-year-old Pantheon. <laughs> it's actually <laughs> falling short of where we could be. And to think 2,000 years later, you know, we have a less desirable material does sort of put the challenge out there as to how we can make it better. So we've got a few issues here. Vince Spicer pointed out that not only are we running out of the right kind of sand, but also that making concrete emits a lot of carbon dioxide. And with 100 million people moving into cities every year, we need to build more housing and more roads. So we need to make more concrete. So what do we do? Well, Admir suggested that we don't really have a choice. We have to use less. I mean, this is definitely a huge challenge that I'm putting forward. I think there is another important strategy that I would like to uh, bring up and that's, you know, use less by design. And it's really a space that is interesting, especially if you start to think of 3D printing your buildings instead of pouring into forms. Describe for me, please, Professor, what the future of concrete looks like to you. What are its properties, characteristics, when you get to that place that you want to be with concrete? Yeah, um, I think uh, there are like long-term and short-term solutions. I think short-term is really find a way to cut CO2. And so creating uh, mixes, ingredients, uh, and the process so that we don't require such uh, amount of energy and CO2 that is emitted. Perhaps we recapture in a way, bring back from the atmosphere into the concrete, into material. And, and so that material is somehow, you know, handling internally all that CO2 cycle. And second thing is, I think, make things longer through self-healing processes. So make a self-healing concrete as a standard. Like, I don't want to build if this thing is not able to respond to degradation in a good way. And, and therefore, that goal of maybe making our structures last 300, 500 years. I don't ask <laughs> every structure to be a pantheon, but, you know, make it somehow last longer is definitely a, a good strategy. And eventually, you know, I think the future is really also on design side where we do care about how much we, we pour and produce. Uh, and perhaps it's not necessary to make all that material. Concrete has been an important building block of civilization for thousands of years. This seemingly simple material is responsible for making a lot of our world work. Roads, bridges, housing, dams, and airports. And the demand for it keeps growing. But that doesn't mean it's perfect. There's a lot of work that needs to be done to make it more sustainable and more durable. Maybe it'll be 3D printing or finding a cement substitute, like recycled glass or even a concrete that absorbs CO2. But wherever we land, the race is on to perfect this ancient material because we need it 
more than ever. Drop us an email at clearstory@thisoldhouse.com to let us know what you think of this episode and if there's anything else you want us to explore. If you liked what you heard, subscribe to Clear Story and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Clear Story was produced for This Old House by Catherine Fenelosa at Rococo Punch. Production support from James Trout, Andrea Suahe, Chris Ermides, and Sarah Chase. And thanks to our guests, Vince Spicer and Admir Mashich. I'm Kevin O'Connor. More next week. Check out the latest This Old House episodes on your local PBS station and on the Roku channel. Follow us on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube for more from our home improvement experts. Sign up for our email newsletter at thisoldhouse.com.